we are in an incredibly trusted position and somebody you know, is coming for the first time to reach out for help, everybody else in their life is sort of, you know, in some ways judging them for their decisions and, and they're feeling incredibly ashamed. And, and we're in this privileged position where, you know, we can, you know, you know listen, empathize and understand. And just listening, not doing, but just listening, validating, hearing, supporting, is an incredibly powerful intervention. Hello and welcome to our very first Sysim podcast episode. Thank you for being here. We are so appreciative and very keen to finally get underway. If you haven't already, uh, feel free to check out our trailer to hear more about just what this first series, a series and conversation, is all about and what our mission is behind each and every episode. I would like to begin by acknowledging and paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land we stand on. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Joining me for this interview is Uni, a fellow SISM team member. Hi, I'm Uni and I'm one of the academic team members with SISM this year. Before we go any further, I would just like to preface that in this episode, there will be discussions of mental health and notably substance abuse and addiction, which might be alarming or confronting. The description of this episode should have some more details and we really encourage you to please reach out for support if you feel that you need it and to only listen in if you feel comfortable and able to do so. So today, we're gonna be unpacking the world of addiction psychiatry with an incredibly inspiring guest speaker. We're gonna be exploring right from the role of an addiction psychiatrist to just how and why substance abuse has such a profound impact on the lives of people in our community. We're gonna be addressing the stigma that continues to perpetuate and for any students keen on pursuing psychiatry as a career, we'll be discussing some insider advice on just how to enter the training program here in Australia. We know that substance abuse, misuse and addiction can have a damaging impact on individuals, families and communities. It is still to this day, one of the most stigmatized health conditions in the world and largely misunderstood in our society. And that's why, we're hoping to really address it today and start the conversation. So whether you're a student keen on psych or anyone really in our community interested in hearing more about these issues and this field, I really hope you'll have something to take away at the end of this discussion. A special thanks goes out to the lead sponsor of our podcast, PIF, the Psychiatry Interest Forum, who have helped us out. SISM has received Australian government funding administered by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists under the Specialist Training Program. PIF are doing some incredible work in providing information for medical students and doctors interested in psychiatry and mental health, which is part of our mission as well. And we appreciate their support so much. So today, let's start the conversation. Let's break down the misconceptions and let's learn more about addiction and psychiatry. Now, I'm so, so excited to have the opportunity to introduce our special guest, someone who is revolutionizing and changing the way we think about and the way we treat addiction, Professor Dan Lubman. Professor Lubman is a psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist with a wealth of experience in mental health and drug treatment settings across UK and Australia. He is the executive clinical director of Turning Point, Australia's leading national addiction treatment research and education centre, 
and the inaugural director of the Monash Edition Research Center. He's a professor of edition studies and services at Monash Uni, and not to mention, he's a recently appointed member of the Order of Australia for his significant service in medical education, research, treatment, and policy in the field of edition. Now, I could go on because there's a lot more, but I'm sure you're sick of my voice already. So I think it's best if I hand over to Dan himself. Dan, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. We're very grateful for your time and having this chat, this conversation. And I think it'd be amazing to start off with getting a bit of an insight into your journey to getting to where you are today to start us off. So I'll hand over to you. Well, you know, thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I think it's a fantastic initiative that you've got going. And it's, I'm really delighted to be asked to come and talk to you and talk to all your listeners around the issue of addiction psychiatry. Um, you know, one in five Australians will struggle with their alcohol, drug or gambling problem at some time in their life. So it's an incredibly common issue. So it's sort of super, you know, super delighted that you pick, you know, sent an email and asked me to be part of this because I, I think it's a really important topic to talk about. As you say, my, my background, um, I grew up in Liverpool in the UK, um, went to study medicine in at Manchester University in the UK. I had a fantastic time there. I was involved in lots of medical societies and was fortunate enough to be able to do a, a physiology degree as part of my medical training. Um, always been really interested in science, particularly in the science of the brain. And um, I was also lucky to have um, uh, really good mentors, um, Professor Bill Deacon, who's... Um, who's a really um, famous psychiatrist for his work in schizophrenia and depression, um, was a real uh, um, mentor to me. I was very lucky that he was there. He, um, we were fortunate enough as part of our uh, medical school training to be able to do a rotation in research. And uh, I worked with him looking at changes in the brain related to schizophrenia. And uh, essentially, um, from the moment I did that, project with him as a medical student, he essentially hounded me to say, when are you starting a PhD? And having somebody, you know, who really looks after you like that and, you know, is, encourages you to really, you know, think about how you can grow your career, I think is, you know, is a really fantastic opportunity. I'm really grateful to him for his support and his advice over the years. And, you know, really, and we could talk about this in a bit more detail, but, you know, Psychiatry has always been something I've been very interested in. I've always loved talking to people, understanding their journeys, their experiences, and what shaped them in their life. And I've always wanted to do psychiatry when I when I studied um, medicine. And so soon as coming out of uh, medical school, after working um, as an intern and then working in ED, I, I moved into psychiatry and was fortunate enough to then get a scholarship to do a PhD. Um, and at that time, um, there was a lot of, you know, pressure really to, to look at those big sort of mental disorders, depression and schizophrenia. But I, I was really interested in conditions that are really stigmatized. And addiction was an area that even within psychiatry was stigmatized. And I said, um, and working with Bill Deacon, who works on how the brain works in mental disorders, I was really intrigued to think about, well, how, what do we know about how the brain works in addiction? And I was fortunate enough to get a, an equivalent of a, a medical research council 
scholarship to study a PhD, did lots of really interesting work in that space using new technologies, such as at that time, PET scans, which were just coming on board, doing some, I'm very fortunate to have those opportunities and um, uh, got my PhD. And then I had a couple of years to finish the psychiatry. And I, I thought, as many, many of us do, I need to go and work overseas. So I came over to Melbourne to work with Chris Pantelis and Dennis Velikoulis in their neuropsychiatry unit. And again, looking at sort of uh, understanding sort of underlying brain mechanisms of um, psychiatric disorders and essentially fell in love with Australia and still here, you know, 20 odd years later and been very fortunate to finish my psychiatric career and then uh, being able to take uh, on a, a, you know, a senior role here at Turning Point and to really drive addiction research, both in Victoria and, and internationally. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Australia is a great place to be and it's good to see um, that you're here. Um, one point that I just wanted to, I guess, move forward from there, you mentioned that addiction psychiatry was stigmatised even within psychiatry. Could you sort of tell me a bit more, tell us a bit more about that and um, what sort of you experienced and faced with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say, you know, addiction is the most stigmatised health condition. I mean, certainly that's according to the WHO. Um, and it's a very misunderstood condition. So I think we still have a very much a moralistic view towards addiction. The idea that, you know, people who take drugs essentially are bad people, you know, and I think our, essentially our, you know, international drug policies don't help that in terms of the framing of drug use and, and what drug use is. And so that creates this sort of view in the broader public around people who use drugs essentially are criminals or bad people or make poor choices. And uh, because of that, then we have very stigmatized views in the community around uh, how we should approach addiction. Um, there's a lot of discrimination, both within the community, but also within the health system. And I think because addiction, you know, and we can talk about this, but for a range of reasons, you know, has sort of been excluded from sort of the curriculum of many health disciplines, including medicine. What ends up happening is most people who actually finish medicine even though, as I said at the beginning, you know, alcohol, drug and gambling problems are so common in the community, actually don't have that much understanding or knowledge or skills in how to address addiction. And so the skills they draw on are the skills that everyone in the community draws on, which is essentially what we hear in mainstream media, which is never yeah. sort of great news stories. And so we have this really stigmatized condition that is poorly understood by people and, and, you know, we, if we frame people as essentially being bad or, or um, making poor choices, then we sort of blame people for their condition. And so, you know, we don't think they're deserving of treatment. And so we want to get them out of our, out of our clinics, out of our hospitals and, and, and want somebody else to deal with it. And I, and I think um, that's a, you know, a really big issue that we're trying to address. Um, it is a health condition. It is, you know, incredibly costly to the health system and costly to individuals and families in the community. And we need to think about how we train the next generation of health professionals to understand the real science of addiction. You know, the fact that it is a health addiction, how we, how we actually approach that. And, 
And certainly that's what we do here at Turning Point. Uh, we're a national addiction treatment research center. Um, we run a whole range of programs, including graduate programs in addiction. And we've just launched a new campaign called Rethink Addiction, which is a national campaign to try and change the conversation around how we think about and how we respond to addiction as a community. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we were going to touch on this a bit later, but I think we might just segue into it now. Um, in terms of your work with Turning Point and, and the Rethink Addiction campaign, I guess from us listeners, which would be the majority of, of medical students, do you have any suggestions on how we could contribute to campaigns like that or um, help deal with the stigma that you've mentioned that's associated with addiction psychiatry? Look, all the help is welcome. You know, the more help, the better. I think the more that people talk about this, the better. I mean, I think the whole reason for launching the campaign is to create a conversation because the conversations we're having at the moment are sort of very closed, very stereotyped. You know, as I said before, it's full of misconceptions. So we need to have a very honest conversation about the reality of, you know, what does alcohol drug use gambling look like in this country? What are the drivers of that? What's the underlying public health approach? Um, what are some of the reasons people make choices? Um, what's the reasons why people become addicted? What are the most evidence-based approaches? So. The more we talk about it, the more we promote it, the more we highlight it as an issue, um, you know, the more we're going to be able to address this issue and treat it like we do any other health condition. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of ways that people can get involved. You know, we would love um, to have people to think about how we promote events you know, that, that uh, medical students can be involved in and get involved in. Um, we'd love to think about... Um, how we can promote this within a whole range of other forums. I know medical students have a whole range of uh, conferences and other events. You know, we'd love to come and be part of that and think about how we um, change the conversation in those sort of settings. Um, we'd, you know, we'd love to be advocating for what's what's within the curriculum and what needs to be taught and. Um, yeah. Certainly lots of ways in which we can think about that. And, you know, certainly what people can definitely do in terms of think the Rethink Addiction campaign, they can certainly watch Addicted Australia. I'm not sure if people are aware of that, but it was, uh, you know, a four-part documentary we were involved in last year on SBS, which follows alive of 10 extraordinary Australians and their families as they seek treatment for addiction. And I think, you know, part of doing that series was around myth-busting and addressing, you know, some of that underlying stigma. So that's encouraging everyone to watch that and all your family and friends to watch that. Uh, I think it's a series that really challenges a lot of those misconceptions. So doing that, joining the Rethink Addiction campaign, signing up you know, to the petition that we have, uh, yeah. encouraging people to attend the events and really promoting the website and, and posting that on social media and encouraging that, that conversation, uh, I think would be fantastic. And the more people can get involved, the more we can turn this whole issue around. Yeah, yeah. I think like from, at least from my perspective, and I think a lot of people's perspective, um, early on in medical school, we're driven towards advocacy. And, you know, when we're in the position of doing so, uh, raising awareness and, and informing people. So as you just mentioned, we're in a pretty powerful position to reach out to other medical students and just other people in the community to get involved in the conversation and, um, you know, raise awareness, follow those campaigns that you've mentioned and um, watch those videos to 
to educate ourselves and then hopefully increase awareness within other people as well. Um, so yeah, 100%, definitely fully agree with all that. Um, I guess the next part of this that I wanted to un unpack was a little bit more about your work within addiction psychiatry. And um, I guess the patients you see and, and your role in, in helping them through um, the impacts that they're facing by substance misuse and things like that. Could you talk to us a bit more about, I guess, the mental health impacts of um, disorders like substance misuse on patients that you you see often yeah no I'm absolutely delighted and I think I think the thing to say here is like I, I haven't met a single patient who drinks uses drugs or gambles who comes to see me who doesn't recognize that you know what they're doing is is creating enormous harm for themselves be it in, in impacting on their physical health their mental health their social life their relationships their job and so we have this conundrum where people you know are, are engaging in behaviours that are causing all sorts of problems but can't stop. And uh, I think the common response, in, and I suppose what the lay, what, what, what I suppose what we're all taught is just tell people just stop it, you know, just, you know, yeah. why are you doing these things? Just stop. And, and you know, and, and unfortunately, that's what many of our colleagues do across the health system. And the reality is if people could stop, they would just stop. I think they've had about a thousand people tell them to just stop. Yeah. So what we need to understand is, is that you know, people who are, you know, engaged in, um, you know, alcohol, drug or gambling harm that's causing this level of distress and, 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 and impact, you know, they're choosing to do that for a reason. So you know, I think the most interesting thing about my job is when I see people is the thing that I always say to people is that, you know, the alcohol, drug, gambling use is a solution to a problem. Like, it's not a great solution. Yeah. It's actually dealing with something else, you know, and, you know, obviously you're choosing to do it, even though, you know, it's harming you because it's playing some function. And what yeah. we have to try and work out is what is the thing that it's trying to fix? So what is the underlying problem? Why you're choosing a strategy that is not a great strategy, but is helping to some degree? And so many of the people that we see don't have other coping skills or coping strategies to deal with those underlying problems. So many of the people we see, you know, with, with really, you know, significant addiction issues often have underlying trauma issues. So either, you know, developmental trauma or, you know, exposure to, you know, a, a variety of different difficult circumstances or underlying unresolved mental health issues. Um, so a whole range sort of issues in their life or life circumstances that makes life very difficult for them. <clears throat> and what we know is most people start using drugs or alcohol, you know, in early adolescence. And what, you know, if people have been struggling, if people, you know, are not coping well, you know, because of things that have happened to them or because of things that they might be struggling with, then you know, drugs are great. I mean, drugs are emotional analgesics. I mean, basically they shut off the emotional part of your brain. And for somebody who doesn't have any other coping strategies, you know, what a what a magic solution, you know? And the problem yeah. is, is that then that person becomes reliant on that solution. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the, you know, if you start using alcohol drugs regularly, then, you know, it creates another problem for you, which is, you know, you know physical and, and psychological dependence or addiction. And, and so now, now you've got two problems. You've got the underlying problem you're seeking a problem, a solution for. And then, uh, you know, 
the addiction itself. And I think that's the issue. That's what we have to frame. You know, we have to, when we see people, we need to be inquisitive and we need to say, let's not look at the addiction. The addiction is a solution. It's not a great solution. We need to think about how we build up your coping skills. We need to think about how we help you deal with the problem. Because if we, you know, if all we do is send people off to detox and say, let's take away this alcohol or drug, but we leave you with the underlying problem that you've never been able to cope with, then we're asking people to, to essentially fail, you know, and that's not fair on people. So I often tell people, I, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to stop drinking or using drugs yeah. until we identify what the problem is and come up with another solution to that problem so that when we do address the addiction, then, yeah. you know, the drivers of that addiction, you know, are already, we're able to have other solutions to. Mm. Can I just cut in there and ask a question? <laughs> you brought up so many interesting points that are part of them. I don't even know where to start. But I did notice at the start when you said um, you used the, the phrase like choosing to use. And I think like choosing implies a certain degree of, I guess, power and agency. I was wondering if that was something you can, I guess, comment on. Because I guess on one hand, you know, I guess patients who study um, struggle with um, sort of problems with addiction I think in that sense there's some things that are sort of so much bigger than them that's out of control in terms of where they're embedded within sort of those broader social and political structures but on the other hand I guess it is empowering to acknowledge that there is some agency that they have in being able to sort of you know I guess control I guess those choices and being able to I guess take agency in their life in that sense so I was yeah. wondering if you had any thoughts on that and on I guess the concept of yeah agency and choice yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a great question, and I think it's a question of you know on a spectrum. I mean, one mm. one of the most common things, you know, common situations I often get asked, in my opinion, on is I'll often um, be asked to see somebody with a mental health issue who, you know, has an ongoing addiction, and uh, many of my psychiatry colleagues are saying, well, like, why do they continue to use drugs when they know that's impacting on their mental health? You know, that's mm. a really poor decision. Like that, we've told them numerous times, numerous times, that you know, using amphetamine or using cannabis, you know, exacerbates their psychosis or the depression or whatever. Why do they keep, keep using? You know, like that doesn't make any sense to us. You know, and and so when I say like, well, actually, they've got a history of trauma. You know, they. They're on a disability pension. They live in a housing commission flat by themselves, you know. They don't have any purpose or meaning in their life, you know. Because of their underlying anxiety, they find it very hard to connect and socialize and and make friends. So if I'm unemployed with a mental illness, socially isolated, disconnected, and I've got nothing to look forward to in my life, and I live in an environment where drugs are really easy to access, like, why wouldn't I choose to use drugs, you know, and particularly yeah. if they make me connect with people. Yes, not, you know, those connections might not be great. They might not be true friends, but at least it's a sense of social connection. Mm. So I think it's about understanding, you know, stepping back and understanding that broader picture of, right, it is about choice. You know, it's not a great choice, but I suppose it's the issue of the choices you have. And, and most people that I see, you know, one of the great things about addiction is that, you know, most people recover. Most people do well, but the thing to do well is, is it's about making a choice because you know, none of us give up things unless it's for a reason, whatever it is, we all enjoy doing things. If, if we're asked to give something up, it's got to be for another reason. Like we're asked to lose weight, you know, we're asked to give up sugar or coffee or stop, you know, activity we really enjoy. It's generally because there's something else that's more important to us. 
So yeah. this is the issue here in terms of choices. I think, you know, if the choices aren't, there aren't any other choices, or there aren't things that people want to strive towards because they have greater meaning or purpose in their life, then we're setting people up to fail. So I think that broader stepping back and seeing the bigger picture and asking, you know, what is the choice about? Like, what, what are we choosing between, you know? And if the choice is living in poverty, you know, you know, overwhelmed with emotions related to under, underlying depression or anxiety or PTSD, you know, feeling disconnected, not feeling like there's any sort of future, then it's, there's not much choice about whether I use drugs or not when they actually sort of block out that emotional pain and sort of help me get through the day. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's about understanding that broader context of what is going on for the person. And that's why doing addiction psychiatry is f- such a fantastic, you know, such a fantastic uh, career option because, you know, you're a bit like Sherlock Holmes, really. I mean, you're, you're having to look for all those clues. Often the people I talk to, they themselves don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They made this choice when they're 14 or 15 and now they're in their mid-20s or early 30s and it's sort of life's just evolved and they're not really sure how they ended up like this. And part of that is is walking alongside people, understanding their stories, understanding what's happened to them and trying to piece together a narrative that makes sense to them to understand where, well, how come they're there? And then that helps us understand, well, how do we think about an alternative future and what that might look like? Yeah. yeah. That's really powerful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, like just hearing that, I guess, in terms of um, the support you provide to patients and, and the patients that you see, it's so insightful because I didn't even think of it like that. And it's really important to hear that perspective in terms of um, it, I really like the point where you mentioned that it's a solution to another problem. So you're trying to unpack that different issue to try and help. I think that I just, you know, just on that point, I mean, I think this is that one of the big misconceptions. I mean, one of the big myths is drugs are addictive. And if you use drugs, you become, you know, you know, develop addiction, you know? Yeah. And yet we know most of the community drink alcohol, but only, you know, a small proportion of people who drink you know, we all drink, but only a small proportion of us will develop addiction, you know? Yeah. You know, if we go back to the Vietnam War, one of the things they were terrified about, the US Army, one of the reasons that methadone got introduced into the US was that during Vietnam War, heroin was easier to get than, you know, than most of the drugs. And so we had huge percentage of, you know, Vietnam, you know, people in the Vietnam War using heroin recreationally and actually technically becoming dependent while they're in Vietnam. And so the US Army were terrified that when these people were coming back from Vietnam, they'd have this massive addiction crisis. And yet what they found, and this is work of Lee Robbins, that when they returned to the US and they turned to a different environment, which is very different to fighting a war in terrible circumstances, is that in the majority of people, you know, didn't come back and remain, you know, become addicted. It was only a small percentage, the same percentage that, you know, that we see across the population in terms of people you know, the percentage of the population you know who develop addiction so the issue is, is you can be in that circumstance be using drugs be technically dependent on a drug um, and yet in a different environment with different choices with different opportunities you know there isn't that issue so i think it's about debunking that myth about yeah. the drugs and often we're focused yes the drugs you know 
they, you know, if we all use them, we can develop that. But it's about life circumstances and other issues that make people vulnerable to addiction, and and we cannot not address those. And you know, as we know, you know, if you break your leg tomorrow and you go into hospital, you know, you'd be given diamorphine, you know, for treatment, and you could be on opioids for quite a period of time, you know, in terms of if you've had a bad injury. So you can become physically dependent to opioids, but, you know, coming out of hospital and being discharged doesn't mean that you suddenly become addicted to heroin or addicted to opioids. There's other circumstances that play a role there. And I think that's, that's part of what we need to do here. We need to unpack the sort of simplicity of the messages that we currently hear and, and, What's exciting about working in this field is, is it is complex, but it is fascinating and, and unpacking and helping people unpack their lives and, you know, find, you know, the solutions, you know, and, and, and listening to people and giving people time to work through these issues is incredibly rewarding, particularly when often they've been discounted or judged or blamed in, for most yeah. of their life. I guess when you're looking at, you mentioned like Sherlock Holmes and trying to find out the cause and um, why people might need to turn to drugs or alcohol as, as a solution. How do you go about helping patients find that reason and, and how do you go about providing that support? Is it primarily the conversation or like what sort of the... Well, I think it's, like, I think it's good clinical skills. So it's about a really good history. Yeah. You know, and I think a really good history, you know, particularly, you know, so, you know, understanding all those sort of vulnerability factors, so having a really good family history, you know, understanding some of these developmental history. So what happened to them growing up, what happened at school, what happened in terms of their relationships and, um, you know, their development as a whole and yeah. what, you know, how, and this relates to mental health more broadly, how might some of those experiences Sort of led, you know, to um, you know things that might be happening for them now, whether it's a development of a mental health issue or addiction. So trying to understand that, and then, you know, helping people to understand how those experiences in the past, you know, so you know, often what we talk to a lot with our patients is, you know, we're, all, you know, who we are today is shaped by our experiences through life, and and obviously we all have our own. Sort of individual experiences so i have no idea what your experience is or how you experience the world so i only see it from my perspective and so whatever i experience i see as normal because i only have one go at this and for me this growing up is normal and, and that's what i find here i hear people saying you know that you know unfortunately you know my you know um you know, these things happened to me growing up you know i was abused or had a violent father or I was bullied at school and stuff like that. But, you know, and then they discount it. They're saying, well, you know, but that was in the past and, and yeah. you know, now I'm okay now. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's about drawing that link between, well, how did that, you know, what happened during your development? How has that shaped how you see the world? How's that how shaped how you can connect with people? How's that affect your self-worth, your self-esteem? How does that, you know, affect your how you, you know, the sort of goals and, um, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, opportunities that you, you want for yourself. So how does that impact on that? And so it's really looking at, I suppose, cognitive development and mm. emotional development and understanding how that impacts on where people are in their journey. And, 
that's why it's such a fascinating and privileged sort of role to have to be able to unpack with somebody their life and mm. and give them an understanding of where they are and what the opportunities might be yeah I think that's just so so important that we keep in mind all of that as medical professionals because I think especially with patients and addiction but I think psychiatry more broadly in general I think patients are too often dehumanized but by engaging these processes with the patients I feel like that's in a way that we can by listening to them truly trying to understand them we can rehumanize them and I guess in that sense it's I think that in itself has a lot of power to heal or power to empower yeah, I think I think listening. I completely agree. Listening is a key skill, you know. And often, you know, we hear but we don't listen. And yeah. I think just being able to sit with people, hear their stories, for you know, often for the first time, allowing them to recount that and and to be really genuinely interested and to really under you know to really think through with them. Well, what, what how did that impact on you? Or you know, what are the ongoing impacts of that and, and mm-hmm. to go on that journey with somebody when normally they've often been discounted or ignored or shamed um incredibly validating and, and really p- important part of that therapeutic process yeah mm-hmm. i love the point before when you mentioned like clinical skills and just clinical knowledge taking good history i mean as students we're drilled into that from like day one you got to take a good history um and it's clearly so important at any stage and um just making sure that you really engage with that patient. Um, as a segue from that, you mentioned it's really important to to listen to patients and give them an opportunity to speak and um, hear them, especially and um, take into account what they're saying. Do you, can you talk to us a bit about establishing that rapport with the patient and and how you go about that, or what are some tips to to help establish that rapport? Yeah, I, th- I suppose I suppose the you know. I think one of the important things in this space is, you know, being clear about what your role is. I mean, and and the role that we have is very much about um, helping people to help themselves, you know. And so I don't come, it's important not to come to the interview with the idea that you're going to be able to fix people, that you, you know, and I think, um, you know, sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, you know, to feel like we're somehow we need, always need to have the solutions. I mean, I, I think the key thing is about how we help people to come up with the solutions themselves and we guide them on that journey. So I always start by talking to people by saying, look, you know, it's great, great to, you know, meet you. Great, you know, great here today. And I, the first question I always ask people is, can you tell me a bit about what you want to get out of today? You know, what what is, you know, because I think Often we make a lot of assumptions about what people want. Uh, we make a lot of assumptions about what they want from us. And I think just being really clear from the gecko around what's, from your point of view, what is it that you want to get out of today? Like, why are you here? What, what, what are you, you know, by, you know, we'll have, a, we'll do a lot of talking, but by the end of the interview or the end of the appointment, yeah. you know, what, what are the key things that you want to resolve by? And then we can, and so once I know that, then I can say, right, thanks for that and we can certainly work towards that and so um, a really good place to start is just understanding you a bit more and hearing about your story and so then being able to take a, a really clear history that helps us understand how we can provide the best possible advice to you yeah yeah I, that's definitely really important i guess um 
just being there, I guess, for the patient. I really like that introductory question because I guess it gives the opportunity for the patient to, and you, to get a clearer idea of, of what the goal is for both people because um, we make a lot of assumptions with, with anything really. So it's really good to get that clarity. Um, I think that's really, yeah. really important because I think if you, you know, one of the advantages of my job or disadvantages, depending on how you look at it, I get to look at a lot of incident reports and a lot of complaints. Okay. And the number one theme in complaints is around communication, you know, in, in whatever field you're in. It's about communication. And it's often because I come in to the appointment with an assumption about what the patient is expecting to receive. And they come in with a completely different assumption. And unless we sort of, from the get-go, get on the same page, then that appointment is always going to go pear-shaped. So it's really important that we're, we're really clear about understanding, you know, what it is that they're expecting, addressing any concerns or worries that they have, because otherwise it will always lead to either frustration yeah. or actual complaint. And it's really, and it's not that we don't, we just don't want patients to have bad experiences and we want to make them feel, you know, obviously they're incredibly anxious often around appointments. They're always, you know, um, struggling, you know, to sort of, to make sure that they're articulating what it is that they need. And I suppose we need to understand how anxious and how confronting it can be for patients. And we sort of need to give them that time and space to really listen to what is it that they want to make sure that we, we can deliver that. And sometimes that means, and I think this is really hard for you guys as medical students, mm -hmm. because you've got a whole list of questions that you want to ask and you've got a very short amount of time. And so you're so focused, you know, you know, like all of us, you know, including me at your stage, you know, so focused on getting through that list of questions that you haven't got time to actually, you know, have a conversation. Actually, it's really frustrating when people want to go on a tangent and talk about other things. So I think one of the things that you learn, you know, as part of, um, you know, your career is how, how to have that conversation and how to make sure you can politely keep people on the right track and also give people space to feel like they're being heard. Yeah, and it's such a simple thing to do, I guess, just have that introductory question and make sure everyone's sort of aligned with the clarity of what the goal is. Yeah. Um, I think one question I had along this sort of space as well, um, obviously looking at recent times with COVID and the impact that's had on people, um, have you found, I guess, in your practice, has there been any change in, uh, I guess, substance misuse throughout COVID? Has that become more of an issue in terms of your experience? Yeah, look, it definitely has. I mean, I think what we saw right at the beginning of COVID, and we've actually got a paper coming out on this um, recently, is, you know, we, we saw a, a massive increase in alcohol consumption during COVID. Um, yeah. I think alcohol was classified as an essential service. Uh, <laughs> we allowed um, companies to home deliver, you know, so essentially... Yeah creating these um, yeah, home delivery services. So essentially a portable pub that the sort of, or off, you know, sort of bottle shop that delivers, um, creating all sorts of issues. So we have seen throughout the pandemic increasing use of alcohol and even alcohol promoted by the industry as being like a really important strategy for managing stress. And, you know, um, and, and certainly if you look at the evidence in any sort of, um, you know, natural disaster, financial disaster, what we see is increased rates of alcoholism and alcohol problems sort of after the, the 
you know, the major sort of crisis. So it's a really common phenomenon that we see. So we tend to see people sort of be more resilient initially, you know, but as things go on and the crisis develops, you know, often people are turning to, you know, alcohol and drugs, you know, as a yeah. way of coping. And, and so that's certainly what we see. We certainly see, I've seen a huge increase in people coming forward for treatment, um, you know, post, well, mid, mid pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and so certainly we're uh, certainly overwhelmed with people presenting and, um, and it's a bit similar to the story we hear about mental health with increases in mental health across the board as well. Um, and I think one of the challenges with COVID is, you know, one of the things that we know is one of the big protectors um, around mental health is around connection. You know, that we know social connection is so important and, and, and those supports are critically important. And I think one of the challenges, particularly for COVID, you know, is, with the social distancing is, is making sure that we stay really connected. And yes, we have these great technologies now that help us do that. But I suppose the question is, is are we, are we really being, you know, are we there, you know, in yeah. spirit, you know, or, you know, we're just going through the motion. So I think that's one of the big, issues I think that's come out of this whole pandemic is, you know, apart from obviously the financial insecurity and all the other things that are going on is how do we make sure we better help people better connect? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think like we might move, I guess, talking a little bit about the psychiatry training pathway um, and along that field, and we might touch back on addiction in a second after that. I guess the, the main idea that we wanted to hear from you for this was for those medical students who are interested in entering psychiatry in the future, um, do you have any tips for them at any sort of stage, whether that be medical students or, or internship, just entering the pathway to improve themselves and um, I guess make them a more successful candidate when they're applying? Yeah, look, I think there's so many different ways that people get involved. I know that the College of Psychiatrists um, has a psychiatry interest forum that's open to medical students. So obviously that's a great way to connect and there's opportunities often um, bursaries or supports to attend conferences. Um, I think there's always options to do electives uh, in the psychiatry space so that those options come up. Um, I think it's always good to talk to your you know, colleagues you know, a few years ahead of you to understand you know, the landscape, you know, sort of talking to our HMOs and yeah. you know, junior registrars around, you know, what's currently going on and what their advice would be in terms yeah. of getting connected. And I think, um, yeah, the, the, there's lots of opportunities, I think, to, to be involved in various sort of initiatives and activities. Yeah. Um, can you talk a oh, I was just wondering, um, for you as a psychiatrist, what is the most important um, piece of career advice that you've ever received? Well, that's a really, that's a really great question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose um, for me, I mean, the best career advice is, is um, and, and this is, is, I suppose, is, is um, not just relates to sort of training, but a sort of a general mm. philosophy is sort of, um, you know, never make do with um, what the current, you know, if you're feeling like what's currently on offer is not good enough, you know, don't be afraid sort of, you know, to, to challenge that and look for something better. I, I think um, I've been very fortunate in my career that I've been mentored by 
some really you know brilliant senior colleagues who have always sort of um, always questioned the status quo. And um, I remember I was very fortunate to work with Pat McGorry, and I, I remember working as a registrar when I first got here in you know the emergency departments and trying to you know seeing people who were really unwell and trying to find them beds and you know and beds not being available and feeling really you know really conflicted about having to send people home when really they're quite unwell and I suppose um, you know what what really inspired me about working with Pat McGorry was that you know he was the first person I met that just said well this is just disgusting and shouldn't happen and you know, as a strong advocate around things can be better. And so I've worked with a number of different mentors in that space who, who've basically challenged the status quo. And I think that's what's really exciting. I think what that what's keep you passionate because there's there's lots of blockages in a whole range of different areas in which we work. But I think either we accept that and just say, well, that's the way it is. And we just have to, you know, just have to accept that or, we see it as our role, you know, as, you know, um, professionals and as advocates to sort of really challenge that status quo. And obviously think about how we bring people on side in doing that. Yeah. But, you know, taking that opportunity to never really settle for being good enough and always mm. wanting to push for something better. And I think that has made for me um, my career really exciting. You know, always asking the question, always challenging, always wanting to do better. And certainly keeps me you know, feeling like I've got a lot more work to do before my career ends. Yeah, 100%. Um, one, so before we sort of did this podcast, we actually put out a form to, to get input from what questions people listening would like to hear. And I thought one of the ones that came out that was super interesting to me and for anyone listening was um, how do you as a psychiatrist manage your own mental health? Um, and I guess how do you separate your emotions from from the patients you see, because I'd imagine you'd hear from people that are going through all sorts of things um, that, that can be difficult to hear. So how do you manage that without sacrificing your own empathy um, as, a, as a practicing professional? Yeah, look, I think that's a great question. And I think that's a just a question for us all about how we survive in a sort of, you know, a, a incredibly rewarding, but also challenging sort of uh, area of work. I mean, I think it's so important to have good self-care yeah. It's so important to have, you know, a, a good support network. Um, it's important to, I suppose, have life, life outside of work. So other interests that you can sort of um, pursue. And for me, I was very, also very lucky when I, when I trained in psychiatry in the UK, part of my psychotherapy training was to have psychotherapy. So um, I, I think, you know, you know, understanding what other, what other people uh, in experience and sort of yeah. having that opportunity to have your own psychotherapy, I think it's really good in terms of identifying, you know, some of the traps we set up for ourselves and identifying, you know, some of the areas where we can improve. And I, I think that's also very rewarding. So I think it's very, you know, often in medicine, we're very good at giving out advice to others, yeah. uh, you know, exercise, diet, you know, support networks, having life after work, work-life mm. balance, all those things. And I think yeah. the challenge for us is how we actually live those values and, and mm. live those messages. And so I think it's, it, it's you know, you can only be as as helpful to others as, as 
you know, as resilient as you are yourself. So I think it's very important to prioritize your own mental health and make sure you're in a good yeah. space because we all know if you come into work sort of carrying a whole load of baggage, then you're not really that helpful to others. And um, yeah. yeah, it's um, it's not that rewarding. So yeah, make sure you look after yourself and preach, yeah. practice what you preach basically. <laughs> exactly, love it. Um, yeah, I think one of the final sort of questions that I wanted to get your thoughts on was um, specifically regarding the stigma around mental health. I know this has been talked about a lot um, in lots of different settings, but I wanted to hear from you regarding what your experience has been about stigma surrounding mental health and even addiction psychiatry within that um, and how we as a community or individuals can help to deal with that stigma and try and break down those barriers so that people who do want to seek support can feel comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you've mentioned okay. you know, having open conversations and so on and so forth, but I guess how do we just really start those conversations of like what kind of questions can we really ask to create that sort of discussion? Look, again, it's a, it's a great question. I think I look, if I take you back to my career, like when I started as a medical student and I was working in a surgical clinic at, at um, Birchill Hospital in Rochdale in northern yeah. um, Manchester. Um, you know, essentially, you know, I went into a clinic and uh, I, I was doing a, a breast clinic and, you know, I saw a number of really well-educated women who came in with uh, end-stage breast cancer, like presenting for the first time. And, and the reality at that time was that, you know, that, that cancer was seen as a death sentence, that, you know, people who often felt to blame for, you know, the cancer. And so, you know, we had this sort of sense of nihilism. We sent, had this sense of poor education around the disorder, the sense that treatment doesn't work and a sense of sort of, you know, people being personally to blame for sort of somehow doing something that led them to develop cancer. And I think if we look from that point to where we are now with cancer, you know, we've yeah. gone from a place where it's something we didn't want to discuss. You know, also as a medical student, I used to meet families who used to tell me that, you know, don't tell him he's got cancer because it'll upset him, you know. And so, mm. you know, we, we would have it'd be the secret that the family would want to keep. So I think if, if we think back to, you know, that's what it's like when I was a medical student. And then we think about where cancer is today and we have, you know, pink test, test matches and we have early intervention. We have people's yeah. stories of hope. We you know, we're encouraging people to get help early. I mean, what a transformation in really, you know, a relatively short period of time. Similarly, I've been in psychiatry for a long time and, it, and really it's been over the last 10 years, like, like 10, 15 years ago, nobody would admit they had depression. You know? It wasn't something that people talked about. Whereas as you know now, you know, we've had that, you know, Beyond Blue and a whole range of initiatives mm. and, and lots of really sort of prominent people talk about their own mental health yeah. journey. And so depression, again, has become sort of relatively destigmatized. People are much more happy to share that information, to talk about it, you know. And again, you know, it's again in, in, in sort of a career history, it's, it's really not been that long ago. So I think those examples are that things that used to be stigmatized, HIV is another good example. Yeah. You know? Things that used to be highly stigmatized, you know, there's, we've seen a change, certainly in my medical career. Yeah. So that we know things can change. And the things that we know that are critical to changing stigma is you know, good education. So having really good understanding of, of the reality of, you know, the science and the, and, you know, what, what is really going on. And secondly, 
humanizing narratives, you know, and stories of hope. You know? So actually hearing the real stories, hearing, you know, understanding that this isn't happening to, you know, what we're portrayed, you know, particularly in the addiction space. It's not the person on the park bench or in the dark alley who's the alcoholic or the heroin user. You know, the, the, we, the people I see are medical students, nursing students, lawyers, doctors, you know, yeah. builders, teachers. You know, one in five, as I say, will struggle with alcohol, drug, gambling problems. So they, addiction affects all of us. You know, it's either somebody in our family or is it somebody in our social network or somebody we work with, you know? So it affects us all. Um, yeah, I, I just absolutely love that message regarding humanizing stories and I guess giving people a voice to speak over some of the bad news stories that we hear and some of the stigmatizing messages um, to give people a voice to speak over that is really powerful. And that comes with, you know, having conversations ourselves, but giving people the opportunity via events, via the um, doc documentaries and those campaigns to give those people a voice. So um, absolutely love that message. Experience yeah. Is that. Yeah, thank yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think we have any specific questions. I thought we'd just end with a note with um, if you had any final words of advice and a little, uh, I guess, crossover with that was if you had anything you would like to have known as, as a medical student back entering psychiatry that you would like to pass on to, I guess, the listeners who are listening in. Yeah, and again, another great question. I, I suppose um, how fortunate we are to be in a career that gives meaning and that has this higher purpose. Um, you, know, you know, one of the things I often see in, in, in some of the mental health clinics I run is people who've followed the dream in terms of having a high-paying job with all the perks and all the money and all the multiple houses and private schools and, uh, you know, all the trappings of everything that society says they should have. But they're miserable, you know, and uh, they feel lost. They've done everything that society tells them to do, but their life has no meaning apart from a financial meaning. And and for us, I think, you know, I feel so privileged that we're in a career that, you know, we are always learning, lifelong learning, and we're always learning, you know, from the people we interact with. And, you know, we have the opportunity to help people transform their lives, which we're so lucky. So I think sometimes... I suppose my advice is we always need to look at the bigger picture. You know, it's about lifelong lifelong learning and the privilege of helping others. And I think sometimes we get bogged down in the details, worrying about learning particular facts about, you know, particular rare syndromes and particularly sort of, you know, at the end of the day, they're all really important, but, you know, to get through to the next stage of your career. But what really matters is that opportunity to help others and to feel that you're contributing and, and, and to be able to, Except that, and then this you know, a bit like when I talked about having therapy before, realizing we can all learn, you know, we have this incredible opportunity. If we're asking people, you know, to trust us and, and to open themselves up and, and to sort of acknowledge their weaknesses and, 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 and to, you know, look at strengthening those weaknesses, I suppose we've also got to be honest ourselves and be willing to, you know, accept yeah. that we're not perfect as well. And so it's that lifelong learning for us and, and for the people we work with and you know having that opportunity to contribute is you know something that i think makes us incredibly privileged to pursue this career yeah thank you so much for that um yeah I, I like just a note on that with 
you know, how you mentioned that, that we're really privileged to be in this position. Um, I heard that, I guess, going into medicine, and I think a lot of people heard this as well, was that we're, when you're practicing, you're in a really unique position when, when you meet a patient, they, it's one of the few fields within society that they automatically trust you. Or generally, they, there's, a, there's an inbuilt balance of trust. And um, that position of privilege is, is really, really important to, to, to use and, um, I guess, be there for that patient and, and help them in whatever way you can um, and form that connection and that communication. And alongside that was, was the idea that um, it's really important that, I guess, us medical students, we're always you know, trying to study, trying to get the knowledge and the facts that you mentioned. But if we take a step back, we're so privileged to be in this position. And um, I just wanted to thank you so much for that and to give that message because it's, I think it's really, really important. And I think the other thing just to follow on for that, just, you know, is that, you know, sometimes we're so keen to do something, like we yeah. have to do something. And mm. we, often I think, you know, some, you know, some of my colleagues struggle the most with this patient group because they feel that there's nothing they can do. You yeah. know, there's no sort of, in, you know, some intervention that they can put in but sometimes you know you don't have to do anything you know particularly like you just say you know you know we are an incredibly trusted position and somebody you know is coming for the first time to reach out for help everybody else in their life is sort of you know in some ways judging them for their decisions and 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 they're feeling incredibly ashamed yeah and and we're in this privileged position where you know we can you know you know listen and empathize and understand and just yeah. listening, not doing, but just listening, validating, hearing, supporting is an incredibly powerful intervention. Yeah. Now, and I think one of the reflections I would have is, you know, as a psychiatrist is that, um, you know, you do psychotherapy with lots of people and, you know, and often, you know, you think, oh, I've said something incredibly insightful, you know, how brilliant was that? And then at the end of the therapy, you talk to a patient and they, and they, you know, they, you know, you talk about, you know, what was helpful or not. And they'll say, oh, I remember when you said this. And I'm like, I've got no recollection of saying that. Yeah. So the point is, is just being present with somebody, you know, and listening and being there and listening and, and just, you know, helping them to think through the situation rather than having to always fix it yourselves. Yeah. That, that's my key message. We don't always have to do something. And sometimes just being and sitting with somebody and listening and not yeah. judging, not dismissing, not reinforcing what other people have done is incredibly powerful. And I think we often underestimate, you know, just echoing what you just said, sort of, you know, what our, our, our position is and how being in that trusted position can have so much meaning to somebody who hasn't been listened to or is, you know, has been judged in so many other different ways. Yeah. And, and listening is, I, it's so powerful. And I think sometimes we forget that we can't really understand how powerful it is for that person who's being heard for that first time or after such a long period of time. And it's hard to sort of gauge the benefit, but if you do take a moment to listen and give them that opportunity to, to speak and have a voice, um, the benefits are potentially not visible to us as individuals, but it goes a really, really long way. And, um, Thank you so much for sharing that because I, I definitely agree. It's such a such an important point that um, hopefully everyone listening can take on board. Um, yeah, so we didn't have any other specific questions, but I guess to wrap up, I just wanted to say a, a huge thank you for, for taking the time to, to chat with us today. And um, hopefully to everyone listening, they were able to take something away from today. Um, I always try and with, with any talk, with any conversation, 
Um, I encourage people just to see if they took something away and just reflect on that one or two things um, because there's a lot we can take away from a conversation like this, but sometimes it's hard to remember everything and take forward in our own practice. So, you know, harping on that one or two points that we can take away is really, really important. But um, thank you so much for taking the time. It was so insightful for us listening here and hopefully everyone um, listening in uh, on whatever platform they are. So, yeah, that's it from me. But Thank you so much for Professor Loveman. I think you've um, given us so many things to think about from, you know, how we can be more grateful as sort of professionals and then sort of just even the little impacts um, that we can create just through, again, um, the power of listening and power of humanising patients. So thank you so much, Professor Loveman. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a real pleasure and uh, I wish you all the very best in your careers.